0: Hello and welcome to episode 73 of the Telling the Story podcast. I am Matt Pearl, author of the Telling the Story blog and a reporter at NBC in Atlanta. This podcast is all about developing your voice as a journalist and developing the skills to harness that voice. My guest oversees a digital brand that has established one of the quintessential voices on the web. Before I introduce her, let me say this. First, Please subscribe to this podcast on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher is the best podcast app I know. It keeps a playlist of your favorite shows and automatically updates with new episodes so you don't have to download them. Just download the Stitcher app and subscribe to the Telling the Story podcast. Second, rate and review this podcast on iTunes. If you like what you're hearing and want others to hear it too, a kind rating on iTunes is the best way to boost us in the rankings and search. So I kindly encourage that. Finally, you can buy my book, The Solo Video Journalist, wherever fine books are sold. It's a how-to guide for the most in-demand job in local TV news, those of us who shoot and edit our own stories. It's getting picked up by college classes. It's being read around the world. Again, that's The Solo Video Journalist on sale now. Most of my guests on this podcast are in local news because most of my audience are reporters, photojournalists, and solo video journalists in local news but I was reminded again watching the winners of this year's National Edward R. Murrow Awards about the fascinating, compelling work being done on the digital front. I think it's so important to see where the standards are for audiences who I don't think distinguish as much as we'd like between broadcast, web-only, etc. My guest today just won a Murrow for a joint venture between her team at Quartz and the team at Retro Report. She is the executive producer at Quartz, Solana Pine, welcome to the Telling the Story podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me,
0: Solana. Uh, first of all, congratulations on the award. What was the uh, feeling like when you guys found out?
1: Uh, I mean, it's always exciting. Um, it's super exciting to win uh, to win this award in particular. You know, and this project is something that we've now been working on for two years. We did two separate seasons, and I think it was really, you know, it was a lot of work. It was exciting. We are really trying to kind of do things a little bit differently, and so it was great, just great to see that recognized.
0: And that's what I want to talk with you about today, doing things a bit differently. And I'm sure for many of us who work in broadcast news, it's going to seem real different uh, than what we're used to doing on a day-in, day-out basis, although I think that's starting to change. I want to get to the work you're doing at Quartz and also your stellar career in this business. But first, let's let uh, let's dive in to the piece and the series that just won the Murrow. The piece was called The Future of Gaming, and it was part of a, of the What Happens Next series that you guys teamed up with Retro Report to produce. Talk a little bit about that series and the the feeling, the mindset that you had going into that about the kind of work you wanted to produce.
1: Yeah. So, you know, it began um, two years ago with we were thinking a lot. Obviously, Quartz thinks a lot about the future. I think, you know, one of the ways that Quartz really looks at the world and tries to break the world down for our audience, which is global, is sort of seeing around corners, understanding the trends today that will shape what comes next. And so that was the idea behind the series. And one thing that we found was that a lot of other reporting really tended to look at the future and talk about it either, especially with technology, as a sort of paradise where we're going to be you know, better and healthier and live forever thanks to technology that will do all the terrible things for us, or as an apocalypse because the computers are going to take over and they're going to kill us all. And like, Mm -hmm. of course, the truth is... um, is a lot more complicated and (laughs) so that was one of our founding ideas for this series in terms of the idea was um was let's try to take a more nuanced in-depth look at um the trends that are happening today that are shaping the future and we also went into it with this premise that um that the future is already here in some places it's not just evenly distributed and so we really looked because it's video for places that we could go people we could talk to kind of characters we could follow who were um, making bets on the future that they believed you know was coming and um, and that's and that was the sort of foundation for the series and then um, and then when we thought about structure and style um, we really were thinking about it digitally and we were thinking about it as um, as something that, would probably get most of its audience on YouTube um, and Facebook to a lesser extent. So the first season um, we did Facebook and YouTube, I'd say sort of simultaneously with equal emphasis and it did very well in both. And then the second season, which the future of gaming was part of, um, we were, we were more focused on YouTube. Um, Yeah.
0: And talk about the differences that arise when you think that way. I mean, you, you worked at New York one uh, in local TV, for a while and and you've had experience in local newsrooms how does it change your mindset how does it change the paradigm when you're thinking this is going to YouTube first and it's going to reach a global audience not just my city or my country even
1: right um well with the audience part i mean that's definitely it it's difficult right because you're thinking about you know, who is our audience, and our audience is very different people from all over the world. Quartz sort of thinks about their audience, though, as as global business leaders, so meaning people who are international, like – whatever country they live in they travel a lot they they kind of look at the world um and the business opportunities they're in from from a global perspective and so what we think about a lot is you know as opposed to local news it's what, what is of interest to you know the people who live in my place we think a lot about how would we explain this for someone who is not from this place or not completely familiar with this thing um and um, and so that's that's kind of one place we're coming from. So in a way, all of our stories um, are for, for people who are interested in the subjects, but not completely well versed in it. And certainly, we're never thinking about like our audience is just an American audience or how do we frame this for people in the United States? It's like, how do we frame this for for a range of people around the world interested in the subject? And then I think the second thing we think about a lot for YouTube, I mean, obviously there are many different routes to success, but, um, but our success has been very much in explanatory journalism. And I think this is uh, obviously a very strong vein of YouTube um, kind of video product right um there are all kinds of different explainers whether they be you know Nerdwriter looking at breaking down you know um movies and and other pop culture or you know vox which is doing like a range of things um explaining everything from politics to to culture to to what have you and and for yeah. us You know, we thought about what happens next as a series, like really rooted in that tradition, but also um, with the goal to use a lot more on the ground reporting than you might see in a lot of other kind of explainer style videos. So these are, at their heart, I think, explainers. They're, they're sort of breaking down a complicated subject and walking you through it. But they're also rooted in you know going out and finding people and being in those places and sort of taking that reporting and fitting it into that genre.
0: And what's interesting about the two sides of this that you mentioned is that they almost seem to compete against each other. And by that, I mean, you're talking about explanatory journalism, and you're talking about in-depth interviews and explaining things to people and and trying to have to cover a wide swath of people in terms of their understanding of the various things that you're explaining. I mean, gaming is a perfect example of that, where you have people that are very much uh, embedded into the gaming world and people who maybe played play bejeweled on their iPhone and then people that are completely divorced from that, right? So you've got to cover all bases. And then when I think about the... You know, your description as having to cover an entire audience that, that that spans the globe. I always think about the way I hear Hollywood executives describe their global efforts, how that's why you see more superhero movies, because they rely more on visual effects. And that's why nuanced comedies don't tend to do as well uh, overseas, because of the playing with language that an American audience might get with an American comic or an American uh, comedian, but... You know someone who isn't as familiar with that language uh, isn't as familiar with English is not going to quite grasp in the same way and have that same visceral reaction of a laugh to it, so it seems like you you know you're you're trying to play to a wide field but you're also trying to get granular on these subjects and I'm wondering how you go about dealing with that? How do you provide information of substance so that it's not just a visual effects show but provide that kind of leveling of the playing field for everyone involved who speak many languages or a cross section of languages and have a cross section of national and international experiences.
1: Yeah, it's not easy. And I think in many cases, <laughs> it comes down to, you know, your best guess, you know, it's like your instincts. I mean, the thing that I love about gaming actually is that you know, we got pickup and praise from the gaming community that found it that like that praised the story because we really were sort of delving in investigating something that hadn't fully been explored. And it was accessible to someone, I think, who really didn't do much do more than play bejeweled on their phone and um and that is always a difficult line to walk and like i think it, that is something that happens kind of edit to edit as we sit as we sit there and say okay do, do you understand this is that too much detail is that too little detail mm-hmm. like but also at the big picture framing of the story where um, you know, my producer came to me and, um, and started talking about this phenomenon that he was seeing and, and and a whole range of people from people who really understood gaming to those who didn't were like, wow, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't quite, um, I hadn't heard that before. And, um, and so that's one way that we that we work on that, I think. And then and then bigger picture, I mean, you know, we, our audience does have some commonality like we are really publishing for people who can understand english right we do we have been trying to do a little bit more subtitling but but like in general our audience is english speaking and then the the kind of the thing about tech coverage in general that I found is it does tend to be a lot more universal and international than a lot of other subjects, because in many mm. cases, as technology people are experiencing, you know, techn- the technology around the world has a lot in common, you know, you know. There, even in places with much less development, like people have smartphones and that kind of thing. And then, and then our audience, you know, definitely is just an audience that uses a lot of tech. And so it tends to be an area or a sort of suite of subjects that work really well for us. I think partly for that reason, because, um, because technology spreads around the world so fast. And, um, and so, and so people, and it is, it kind of, you can experience it even if you, you know, English isn't your first language, right? Like people Mm -hmm. are using this tech. And so it ends up being an easier subject for that kind of audience.
0: And your future of gaming piece talked largely about how, when people think about the controversies of gaming, typically it's about violence and effects on children, but what's really happening. And as you said, the future being the present really is the way that, uh, companies are kind of getting inside your head using the various decisions you're making as a gamer. And again, gamer can be anybody from the person with a headset playing Halo to the person playing Bejeweled and almost turning and and using it as advertising and making money and, and profiting off of, in some cases, people's growing addictions to gambling. So it was really substantive and really powerful, but it also had the visual effects of, uh, I I I'd actually like you to describe it because I know I would butcher it if I tried. But there was a lot going on visually beyond just the standard interviews. And, uh, and classic B-roll that you might see in a broadcast package.
1: Yeah, and, and that was a real challenge, actually, because um, so there's, you know, people playing video games and then there's trying to sort of visualize the experience. And a lot of what we're talking about is this unprecedented amount of data that you're giving these companies and how then exactly they're using it to keep you hooked and and keep you paying. And so it wasn't an easy thing like, it's both very visual, like, you know, video games are this visual experience, There are whole, you know, YouTube channels that are just watching people play games. But at the same time, it isn't, mm-hmm. like, obviously visual in the in terms of the kinds of scenes that, you know, we might love in the documentary. And so we had In that case, we actually had a really amazing shooter and just the most talented editor. And um, and they kind of came together and were like, well, how could we what are the ways that we could visualize this? And we did a lot of like beautiful shooting of people playing video games and like dark rooms that was, I think, really striking and abstract, but also helped communicate the point. And then and then we also wove in you know, like YouTube clips of people reacting to, um, to getting prizes and stuff, um, on YouTube to to kind of drive home, uh, the point that we were making about the kind of payoff, like the, um, almost the addiction to playing video games in the way that the, that the, the prizes are very much like gambling. Um, yeah. And so it was a- By the way,
0: shout out the shooter and editor. Who are we talking about?
1: Uh, so the editor was Jeff Bernier with Stack. Uh, so it's a freelance company. And he's just one, I mean, I'd say probably the most talented editor I've ever worked with. Just so creative with like an amazing feel for um, for music and for cuts and really creative in terms of thinking of visuals, like a producer's brain. And the shooter who did a lot of the really abstract- um, shooting was this woman Gia Lee, who um, who was on staff with us working with us for on a project for the past year and she's just I mean just you know really amazing at like creative beautiful stunning visuals even for things that you start out thinking like I, I don't know how we're going to visualize this and then <laughs> the producer on the piece Jacob Templin was also he's also at Quartz and he also shot a lot of the piece and is also a lovely shooter um for a lot of the interviews and, and the, uh, he did the traveling. So he was a kind of a one-man band in, um, in Japan and in California at some conferences, did a lot of like the heart of the piece. And then, and then Gia kind of came in as the artist and helped us with the stuff we really wanted to be creative about.
0: This is the Telling the Story podcast. I'm Matt Pearl. She is Solana Pine, executive producer of Quartz. I want to get into the journey you've had there because it's, it's been a few years now, almost half a decade, Uh, that you've been there and I mean you know it's it's kind of a high stakes environment in that you're being asked to oversee for a tech site that's probably going to want their video to look futurey and and cutting edge so the pressure is on but also I would imagine it gives you a lot of leeway and freedom to try new things talk about what you felt about all that when you got there and how you approach what you wanted this video department to be.
1: Yeah. So I came on, Quartz didn't do video before I started, and I was brought on to launch our video team. And I think the decision from the beginning by um, the founders was that, you know, video is expensive, it's hard to do well, and none of the founders were steeped in it. And so they thought, like, let's figure out what Quartz's voice is before we move into video, which I think was really smart. Um, And so then a couple years later, I came on with a really small team. It was me. It was Jacob Templin, who was the producer on the gaming piece, actually. And then one other uh, producer, a man named Adam Freelander, who's now at Vox. And it, it was the three of us. And we were tasked with figuring out what is quartz's voice in video, um, you know, with a small team and um, and kind of the world as our subject, which I which always makes it harder, right? And and because mm-hmm. you don't have that kind of special specialty expertise, but. Um, what we did, what we did was, we started publishing directly to Facebook, which, um, which was a decision based on the fact at the moment Facebook was, you know, putting their finger on the scale, really pushing video out, and much of Quartz's traffic then came from Facebook. What it offered us was this chance to reach our audience immediately and get really quick feedback because videos were being pushed out to so many people, um, we could really start getting a sense of like, what kind of stories resonated with our audience Quartz covers a lot of things, you know, thinks of itself as a, as a global business publication. Um, and for us, it was like, what are those, what are, what are the subjects that are, that are visual, um, how do we channel Quartz's voice, which is really conversational, which is, um, has a real kind of laser focus on not just what's important, but why is it interesting and how do we communicate that, um, what is interesting to our audience. And, you know, Facebook at the time was a, an interesting place for that because obviously everything's autoplaying without sound still is. And that creates a very yeah. specific format of video, you know, which, which none of us were particularly, um, which none of us had particularly done before, which is text on screen um, at that time, fairly short form pieces. But what it forced us to do was really be economical about storytelling and think about like, what are the first 15 seconds and how do you catch someone's attention as quickly as possible? And we were able to kind of learn those things and I think create something that was tailored to that format, but was still really smart. Um, And felt quartzy. And then we could use a lot of the things we learned as we as we moved into longer form storytelling where we had more tools at our disposal. Like we, you know, hoped people were listening to what we were we were making, not just watching (laughs) it. Um, But but that process was great, actually, because it when when we were small, we were creating these short, quick. Pieces. We ended up doing a lot of science and tech because um, because it was easier to get footage because those subjects were squarely in Quartz's wheelhouse. Um, my background actually had been in science journalism as well, so so there's kind of a perfect storm of of things. And we um, and we just kept building on that. And if we moved into longer form stuff. Um, you know, we all had backgrounds in more documentary style storytelling as well as news, and so we could start bringing that in, but keep the voice that we had honed in this shorter form on this platform and and build on it.
0: Before we get too far removed, I wanted to get back to what you said about realizing that you had to adjust how you produced videos for Facebook because of the need to grab people within the first 15 seconds. And you're someone who has produced documentaries for Nova and have worked in the local news world and have done work that has gotten to be much more deliberate and taken its time and i'm curious as to what it was like for you to have to adjust to facebook video and if there were any surprises along the way or any things that went against your instincts of how to tell stories
1: yeah i mean in a lot of ways i think it was great i think that sometimes um I just feel like it's easy to presume that your audience will be with you. And so being forced to figure out how can I capture attention really quickly is actually a very useful thing in storytelling. Um, But at the same time, I mean, I would say the thing that went against our instincts was probably text on screen, right? Like a video person, you think about the video is capturing people's attention. And the idea that we would put words up there at first was like, it was sort of an anathema. But what we found was, um, that it can be really useful, actually. And I would say going forward, you know, obviously we don't use text on screen the same way for a place like YouTube where you expect people to stick with you after they click play. Um, And we expect people to be listening, really. Um, But uh, we did find that there are times when text really helps emphasize a point, especially in narration, and that we could be, that we became much more creative about using it um, even off. Facebook, that I think, and I think that was a really interesting learning. And then, um, and then, yeah, you know, you tell a longer story differently, but I still feel like the rigor of thinking about, like, am I going to catch this person's attention in the first, you know, 15, 20, 30 seconds? Are they going to keep watching? That's actually. I think very useful whether you're on Facebook or somewhere else especially in digital media where you know someone's probably watching on their computer or their phone and they have so many other things competing for their attention. So I think there's a kind of rigor to the storytelling that we were forced to have that um that may, that, that we began using everywhere because it because it actually is really important.
0: And are there tools to catching and capturing that attention online that Uh, or strategies that differ from what you might do to capture someone's attention in broadcast?
1: You know, I think that ultimately, it's always about two things. It's about the visuals, right? What is the thing you're seeing that is arresting? And then it's about the idea. Um, And so and it's this intersection of like, what is the most interesting idea? And what? um, And what is the what are the most interesting visuals? And how can I kind of fit them together you know it's like a venn diagram and what is the thing that that (laughs) is in the middle um and i and i think that's true in broadcast and in um in digital but uh but i think like we just had to think about it and i think with facebook you want you had to be you had to really pique curiosity maybe even more than you might in another uh, in another format so you know it would, it would be like is there a kind of intriguing question or phrase or statement um, in addition to the video and whereas in other places you have you know, i think you have more freedom right it might be a really arresting scene um, that you both hear and see, but, um, but the kind of underlying premise, this like intersection of the idea and the visuals, I think sometimes video falls down when we think it's just about the visuals, right? Like what Mm -hmm. is going to catch, what is going to look cool and catch someone's attention. Um, because ultimately what's keeping people watching is that idea, like the interesting story that you can encapsulate as best you can early on.
0: Now, I'm curious because obviously you cover a lot of tech in science. Those are not always the most visual appealing. They can be, but sometimes they're not. When you choose which stories to really go full-fledged with video for, are you choosing the topic first and then figuring out how to make it visually compelling? Or do you think what might have the best visuals of the many things that we would cover and then go from there?
1: Yeah, we do both. So, a big question that we get to ask ourselves, which I do think, so with broadcast news, I feel like, you know, you're often thinking about what are the biggest stories of the day and we're going to tell them in video right. even if, you know, they're not necessarily the most visual. The the thing that we have as a di- as part of a digital news publication is we can really ask which stories are better in print, which stories are better as photos, and which stories are better in video and so you know it's this intersection of a really good strong idea a really good strong framing and narrative but also something that's going to benefit from video so you know that we'll ask ourselves would this be better as a photo slideshow mm-hmm. you know or like we don't do slideshows, right. but a photo post. Um, would this be better in text? Would this be better as some intersection of text and video? Or is this a really strong video? Because seeing it in some way will help you understand it better or will will show you something new. Because you know, sometimes we do pieces that are fully animated, but we are doing them because the animation, the visuals, actually help you understand the story. They give you something that you wouldn't get if you were just reading it.
0: Well, I'd imagine most people listening to this have probably seen at least one or two Quartz videos uh, here and there, if not uh, being regular uh, viewers and readers, and uh, they're familiar with just the kind of groundbreaking work that you guys are doing, and as you move forward, have there been any changes to how you look at that, and are there any changes to the way you produce videos, even in these last few years, given some of the technological advancements that have taken place on the video production and on the post-production side?
1: Yeah, so are you asking sort of specifically about like cameras or like 360 video in VR or more about the kinds of videos we're making and, and, and kind of where we're publishing them?
0: I was asking more about the gear, but I'd say all of the above.
1: Um, I mean gear-wise, uh we have done we've done some 360 video. We are kind of constant we're thinking like Quartz as a publication has done some AR uh stuff, but not Precisely video, more like a kind of interactive image. Um, but on the video and the video side, like we started out with some Sony uh, FS7s and now we've got some C300s that we use, too. And we use like the A7S but we, we shoot kind of traditional video and think a lot about about that in. That like traditional video ways, right? Like mm. using good cameras to get good audio and good video, and like and 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 going out and doing all the normal things. If anything, like you um, were continuing to think about these new technologies, but um, but have still found that there's not as much reach even with 360, and certainly with VR, as we kind of want before we really, really double down. So we want to understand the format and think about where it's strong. But, um, but narratively, our strength has continued to be in just in video, Um, you know, in in two dimensional (laughs) video, where I think um, you can craft a narrative, you can reach a lot of people. Um, It's just a lot more accessible. And then in terms of Publishing, you know, we started out on Facebook, we um then moved to really think about YouTube as well. We've always had an on-site presence and our onsite presence is a YouTube player, but the thing that we've um really been working on in the past three to six months is Quartz has a membership product, so we have a paywall and we've been producing video series behind the paywall, which is um which has been really interesting and in a lot of ways uh we're incorporating all of the stuff we've done off site or in front of the paywall and using that to kind of create series that we think will resonate with readers and viewers and, and make them, you know, want to subscribe to Quartz. But that, that's that been that kind of new experience for us.
0: Well, uh, and one of the things I, I loved about the future of gaming series was that there really was solid 2d video storytelling, even beyond uh, a lot of the glitzier moves. I mean, just the interviews look great. Uh, the editing was strong front to back and, and it showed And and that's, I would imagine, a good chunk of why it, it was honored the way it was uh, this past month. This is the Telling the Story blog. I'm Matt Pearl. She is Solana Pine. In the few minutes we have left, Solana, I, I just wanted to touch on advice for young journalists. That's where we usually use this last section of the podcast, and I know we only have a, a few minutes left. But I'd just love to get your take as someone who has really lived quite a career, both with variety in both the kinds of journalism you've done, the platforms you've worked for, and the countries that you've worked in. Talk a little bit about the decisions that you've made in your career that you feel like have really guided your path.
1: Yeah, so my career has been really meandering. I mean, I started out in print. I started out as a science journalist. I um, I moved into kind of criminal justice. I went My first video job was for New York one. So it was a local news reporter covering criminal justice. And that's where I learned to shoot. And uh, I didn't learn to edit there, but I kind of learned to understand what you need in editing. Um, (laughs) And then after that, I went overseas. I've done this huge variety of things. And early on, you know, when I was starting out, like my husband was also uh, is a, was a print journalist is now in video, but we, um, You know, in, I guess, 2005, started thinking a lot about what is this intersection between, like, what is multimedia? What what could you do if you kind of reported print and video together? And at the time, when we were talking to people about it, like talking to publications and sort of pitching this idea, people were like... What? Why would you do that? Um, which was amusing <laughs> now. Um, and, and so back when I started, my career was really weird and really weird for, I think, a lot of places because, video, because digital video was new. And the idea of someone who would go and kind of flip back and forth as I did was different. Um, and now that's actually proven to be this huge asset for me professionally which is because because every place is thinking about reporting in different um in different medium it ends up being an asset to have done a lot of that different stuff and the thing that i've sort of found professionally the advice that i always give is it's actually really hard like i think i went into a lot of different parts of my career thinking I knew the thing that I wanted to do. So I went overseas because I wanted to be a foreign correspondent and that was amazing. But the thing I often found is that long term it was very hard for me to predict like what is the job that is going to be the most fulfilling? But mm-hmm. if I made my career choices on like what job is the most interesting for me to do next. I mean, obviously you're thinking about like what makes sense within the context of what you've done, but really just thinking about like, what sounds fun and interesting for me to do now. Um, it's, it's been, it's led to this really varied career, but that I think actually is an asset as the media world keeps changing. And, um, and 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 it's something that you're much better able to predict. I think you know the long term. What will make me happy is actually really hard to solve for, and it changes over time. <laughs> but like thinking about an interesting, challenging job, um, that that's something that you can kind of understand, and I think it often will lead you to make the best choices.
0: By the way, I should you you mentioned your husband. He is uh, Eric German, who uh works for Retro Report and who I, I just discovered was your husband after reading your bio uh earlier and was delighted to hear that because I'm a huge fan of his as well. And I might think I've even shouted him out on the blog. I'm not sure. But oh, that's awesome. um, yeah. yeah, I mean the stuff that Retro Report's doing again another great digital outlet that is doing a lot with video uh in ways that I think a lot of other places are missing. Um I think one thing you said that's really important I, I think especially with the way media continues to evolve is that importance of staying fluid and trying a lot of things when you're younger too. Um, I think it's, it's easy to get set in your ways as you get more established in the business. But especially I know at our station, when we have younger reporters and producers come in, I mean, my God, so many places today are fluid and they are playgrounds and you can do so much and try so much And that only helps you as you move forward in your career. And like you said, you might not have learned how to edit at New York one, but being around it and understanding what makes for compelling editing helped you moving forward.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely true. And after that is when I, my husband and I went overseas, we moved to Morocco. And that's when I really taught myself to edit. Um, and everything I'd learned there made that possible. And I would say that's the other thing that I did a lot of was when I had a job and often, you know, your first jobs, like you're not writing for the New Yorker, right? You're not, you're not working for 60 minutes. Like you're doing, um, you're, you're just starting out doing smaller stories, um, you know, not maybe what you had in your head as like the ambitious journalism that you would eventually get to. And you should be there because one, you're learning a ton of stuff like being um, doing that kind of early reporting is so useful and has been so useful for me throughout my career, but also what I tried to do is think about, like, what are the skills that I need to learn to get to the place I think I might want to get to and how can I learn those even if it means working on my vacation or, um, right. or you know, in the evenings or, like, whenever I could, obviously within reason, um, to sort of help me get to the place that I thought I wanted to get to.
0: I've been really fortunate now through the podcast and through various workshops and conferences to get to know quite a few young documentarians and digital storytellers. And I think it's great because when I entered the business 15 years ago, there wasn't really that lane. You know, Digital right. video really wasn't a thing yet, certainly not to the degree that it is now. So as a burgeoning video storyteller in the mid-2000s, your options were pretty much get into local news, start in a small market, jump to a higher market, jump to a large market, and then figure out where your career might take you. Now, it's really interesting to see a lot of younger aspiring journalists, many coming out of college and just diving right into the digital video realm. But I think the one criticism I hear from people in that space is you can find a lot of work, but it's tough to find steady jobs and careers. Do you have any insight into that and what advice would you have for the for the younger journalists in the audience who, who do, you know, see this as a really powerful, compelling way to do impactful journalism but might be a little scared off by the uh, perhaps overly fluid nature of it compared to broadcast?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a valid concern, right? Um, I do think that there's still... A lot of demand for people who know how to tell digital stories but um, but it but I think, I think the strategy it always kind of has to be sort of thinking about the skills you can learn and what are the publications that are doing the things that you want to do and how can you start approaching them or, um, you know, pitching them stories or getting an internship there or, you know, working for those places freelance mm-hmm. and then like kind of figure out, figure out career paths of, of people, you know, you admire. But I think, I think, digital video, like many places, a lot of the jobs when you start out, you know, what those entry level jobs are vary. At first, it was Facebook video, you know, a couple years ago. And, you know, now it might be Twitter or, um, or something else. And so it's like, there are jobs, but, um, but then it's figuring out how to take those jobs and take and use them to develop the skill set that you want to develop. So I think it's like, you know, there are jobs, but then also figuring out how to get the jobs to to tell the stories you want to tell. And sometimes that means, you know, you've got to tell them first, you've got to find ways to do it freelancer in your own time, and then build off of that. And I think it's, you know, which I think is true throughout journalism, actually, especially now. And the truth is that the digital space is changing so fast, and the business models <laughs> for media companies are changing so fast, that, um, it, it, it's always going to be a little bit in flux. Uh, so, the best, but if you're interested in the basics, you know, if you're interested in reporting and figuring out how to tell compelling stories, like those are skills that I think translate whether you're in broadcast or digital or docs or whatever the case may be. And so, kind of trying to ground yourself in like good reporting, you know, know how to do a bunch of things and then. Um, and then be open to different opportunities and figure out how to use them to your advantage.
0: All right. Well, Solana, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. I always like to end the podcast by asking that famous reporter's question: Is there anything we haven't touched on that you wanted to add?
1: No, I think you covered. I think you covered uh, all all of the things. It was great.
0: All right. And you can see the work, video, and otherwise being done by Solana's team at Quartz, which is QZ. Dot .com. Solana Pine, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was great.
0: And the Telling the Story blog updates every Wednesday. The website is tellingthestoryblog.com. Rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher Smart Radio and check out my book, The Solo Video Journalist. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Telling the Story podcast. We'll see you next time.